0: It's episode 61 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Dean. Today on the program is Matthew Scharf. He's a paper consultant for the G.F. Smith Paper Company, and we're going to talk about designing for print and why it's increasingly important in our digital world. Matthew, thanks for being on the program. Thanks for having me.
1: Lovely ah, to be here.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Paper. Oh my gosh, we're going... This is going to be great i'm very very interested in this uh we have been talking about digital design on this podcast uh for for 61 episodes i guess it's been we have not talked about print at all and frankly it's a little scary so <laughs> i'm glad you're here <laughs> not to not Thank to you. set you up too much but
1: <laughs> yeah well um you know we it's an interesting time the um you know the decline of paper i guess in the world for all sorts of applications is becoming more and more apparent, whereas we tend to buck the trends with the type of paper that I promote. And it's it's something which I think is becoming much more clear into people's consciousness about the quality of paper, the types of materials they should be selecting, print techniques, binding methods. There's things which perhaps many people wouldn't have thought of in the past, but are becoming a lot more culturally significant and how things are presented because we live in this age of everything being digital, intangible, ephemeral. <laughs> and <Yep. laughs> I just feel like that, especially with this kind of online insurgence of, you know, a lack of, a lack of physical things, it's, it's really important to see how, how companies can present themselves in a physical and tangible way. I was, um, you'll appreciate this. I was having dinner tonight with my
0: kids and I okay. said to them, uh, so I'm doing a podcast tonight and they're like, Oh, what's it about? And I said, uh, it's how to design for print. And they said, what's print. I said, <laughs> all right. All right. Fair enough. And I said, you know, stuff on paper and they're like, Oh, 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 they're, that's super easy on screens. You type stuff on paper. You use crayons.
1: So there, solved. Next topic. That's it. <laughs> yeah it's 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 interesting you mentioned that we do um i speak to a lot of university students and i've been with gf smith now for 10 years and at first i was perhaps under the impression that as the generations went on and the younger generation of designers were coming through there would be so much less interest in paper and print whereas actually there's almost like much more emphasis placed on it now amongst youngsters youngsters if you want to call them that (laughs) college kids (laughs) Um, college kids yeah and there's a real appreciation for that tangible touchy-feely thing that's and i think there's i wouldn't like to say there's a boredom around digital but i think there's almost like an excitement and surprise which comes when you're actually producing something which you might not see for four weeks but then all of a sudden it comes back from the print company and you've got something physical in your hand. Oh yeah, that, there's something magical about that. I think.
0: There, yeah, there is. I mean, it's almost. I mean, it's almost a cliche around like the the resurgence of analog and stuff like that, which is fine. And I and I think yeah. it is. There, there is something uh, far more satisfying around it. And I know even myself, like the, the that I have increasingly pulled back from leisure time in front of a screen. Right, like the things that I have been spending my time with. You know, when I just want to totally. Uh, unplug and, 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 uh, and do something very different. It's like, you know, making sourdough bread. And, uh, and now I've been like noodling around with analog synthesizers, you know, stuff like that. It's just like, because there's an, there's an immediacy and a tangibility and, and it feels, it just, it feels better than more screen. I don't, I don't know. It's hard to hard to describe. Um, you know, I have plenty of friends that that are into vinyl and have records, walls, walls and walls of records and things like that. Um, and it, it and it sort of logically makes no sense, right? Like, yeah. dude, for ten dollars, you got a Spotify account. Literally every song ever recorded. Uh, that's right. well and some of my friends were like yeah but no not this bootleg from what yeah boy. but um <laughs> but uh but there is something about the ritual of of handling uh an analog object in the world and the deliberateness yeah. of it and things like that and, and, and so maybe you know
1: that's where it's coming back from yeah i think so i think i think what maybe is important to remember is you know you could talk about vinyl and that kind of appreciation of the tradition of vinyl and perhaps the feeling that it gives you that some people talk about and so on yet print is fundamentally different perhaps because at at a fundamental level print has to deliver a message the same way that digital might but just in a different way yeah um so there's a message which there's a message which has to be given in some sense and that will always be different to what you can get on screen i think that's what's quite important so it's you know from a If you look at like an organizational point of view of a a company deciding to produce print to promote a product, for example, there has to be some kind of value in that. It's not, they're not going to do that just because it feels nice or looks nice or it feels good to do it. There has to be a tangible value. Hmm, Interesting. So tell uh, tell me a little bit more about that. Like
0: you, you mean sort of like making the decision to, to produce a thing in the world has like schedule implications and financial implications and things like that. Is that what you're getting at?
1: Yeah, I think I think you have to be quite honest with the medium and be prepared to work within boundaries that physical media has. Um, you almost have to use that to your advantage in a different way that you would on screen. Um, because a piece of print is designed to help solve a problem or deliver value. And, you know, there's no immediacy with it like there is on a website I mentioned earlier. Mm. You know, you can wait weeks to see something. But there's also the fact that you know that your customer will receive something which has been worked on and poured over for a long time. And there is an inherent
0: value in that. Interesting. Interesting. Now, and we should, when you say an inherent value, like we should back up a little bit because the kind of like you are in the paper business, but not just in the paper business. This is not like, uh, you know, the folks in the office, uh, at Dunder (laughs) Mifflin, right? (laughs) Uh, you guys are like GF Smith is like proper. This is gorgeous stuff.
1: Yeah well we're a very well established British company and we I guess you could say curate and create the most wonderful collection of papers which are used in typically the creative industry so Mm. we essentially travel the world to discover some of the most interesting colour and textured materials which we then showcase in our collection and our typical customer base is made up of graphic design agencies, creative brands, architects, students of course and then of typically the printers who actually have to convert our paper into the finished thing. (laughs) So my job is to form relationships with clients and to advise, encourage and educate them about how interesting papers can add value to what they're doing. So we typically sell, you know, not just your kind of white or cream, smooth copier paper that you'd run through the office printer, but there's a collection of papers which look like fabric or steel (laughs) or or wood. And you know, that's where the point of difference actually lies. It's not just you kind of, don't think of paper as just what you might imagine that You'll see every day but there are so many interesting materials which can really reflect the product or service that you're trying to promote
0: yeah, yeah yeah so that's the that's what I'm getting at like with value it's not just like oh you went to the time to print something out and you sent it to us thank you but like wow like this is like really where the medium is the message right like yeah um holding something in your hands feels like crafted and uh deliberate and yeah I, I think that's a sort of remarkable and it's a company that's been around for this is crazy. Like I'm not used to this. I grew up in Los Angeles.
1: And like <laughs> it's people, 134 you know, years old.
0: Yeah. See, when I go in LA, people would come visit from the old country and we would like show them around and go like, that building over there is over 40 years old. <laughs> and they'd be like, what are you talking about? And <laughs> and you are uh you're working for a company that's 150 years old.
1: I know. No, it's unbelievable. And we're we're quite fortunate. We're you know, we're really well respected and we've almost become a bit of an authority on paper selection as well as design you know and we find that it's not just look we call a company and they want me to come in and show them they get in touch with us and say look how can you surprise and encourage and delight and what can we do to show our clients you know if it's a design studio how can we actually talk to our clients in an interesting way which will get across the value that using your papers will you know will give Mm -hmm. um So we align ourselves with cultural institutions. For example, we're doing more than ever now to make sure we support design and art schools to ensure that students have the resources, tools, and knowledge, you know, necessary for when they move into industry. And we're also involved with a lot of design events. You know, we've been a supporter for the likes of London Design Week. Mm. Then we get involved heavily in small local conferences and events. You know, it could be tiny little letterpress workshops or, you know, a couple of friends who've decided to perhaps arrange an event which is in an area which isn't London and, you know, perhaps doesn't get the creative attention that other major cities do. And we are always willing and happy to support that. And that's something we've done since, you know, probably the fifties at least. That's amazing. Um, Yeah. Such
0: a tradition and something. So sort of in, in contrast to what feels so, um, just so recent with all of the design work. Like I know, like I've been doing this for a long time, since the nineties, but even yeah. then, like that felt like very early and, uh, well, uh, and, and it still does, like, it still feels like we're trying to figure things out and, and all of that. And, and I'm wondering a little bit, if you talk about the sort of juxtaposition and, and how, uh, like, are, are you seeing young designers with an interest in, in learning the the craft of, of print design, Uh, because i have to be honest like i spend all of my time in the digital world and i haven't yeah right and so i'm i'm a little unfamiliar with like is is there are there people that are still like really trying to innovate in the craft and 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 things like that i just feel like i I, uh, i have no insight into that
1: i mean there definitely is there absolutely is and you know we're seeing that with the the art schools and the design schools like i mentioned earlier you know they're actually putting um, sample libraries in place and they're putting letterpress workshops in place mm. I think they're trying to encourage people to actually think because I guess when you think of education it's it sometimes is all rounded and you know it's actually really useful that if you have uh, you know a knowledge of things outside of the digital realm that will be beneficial perhaps not just in your creative and professional life but actually make you a better person almost I feel like there's something quite important about that Um so yeah, so we're absolutely seeing there's a certainty that there's a collection of, a collection of uh, excitement around paper and print that is quite difficult to talk about. But when you're in a room with a collection of young people, <laughs> they really appreciate it. It's difficult to describe, but you can feel it when you're there. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. All right, that sounds great. I have some, uh, a bunch of other questions for you, but uh, I want to take a little break and talk about uh, one of our friends who has sponsored the show. And that is our friends at Abstract. Uh, Abstract is design workflow management software for modern design teams. So more and more tech companies are realizing every day that design is a competitive advantage. And they're also finding that the workflows and tools that they use are just not up to scratch So if you're a designer, you'll know how frustrating this is. You search and you export files from one tool to another, especially when you're consolidating feedback from multiple sources. And never being totally sure what changes have been made and what are approved and where's the feedback. That's where Abstract comes in. Our friend Josh Brewer, who was on the program a few months ago, uh, was formerly the principal designer at Twitter. He's the founder. And his goal in this uh, product was to sort of develop the GitHub for designers that 's uh kind of think of abstract as your team 's version controlled source of truth for all the design work that they 're doing. It brings design workflow into a single unified place so that designers and developers and stakeholders can all collaborate and keep the work moving forward uh, in the last two years. Abstract has already gotten a hundred thousand users uh, and they are spending less time searching for files and tracking down feedback and more time. Focused on innovation and collaboration. These are companies like Zappos and MailChimp, and they're and into it, and they're all relying on Abstract to improve their design workflows and collaboration. Here's the things you can do with Abstract. You can design, uh, you can take your design files and version them. You can present the work. You can request reviews for the work. You can give feedback on the work. Uh, and you can give developers direct access to all the specs they need to make the work. And that's all from one place. So, sign up your t- your team for a free 30 day trial today by heading over to goabstract.com. That's goabstract.com. And this is pretty cool. If you do, if you send out a tweet uh, and, and tag at uh, goabstract and at presentable FM, just use the phrase, improve my design workflow. Uh, and they're going to pick one of those tweets and give you $500 credit for the business plan. You get your whole team set up for a while. That abstract, uh, that URL one more time is goabstract.com. It's a free 30 day trial. Go try it out. It's amazing. Uh, So, my thanks to Josh and the team over at Abstract for supporting this show and for supporting all of Relay FM. All right. So, uh, we've been talking about um, just all the excitement around paper and analog and and, pulling back from digital and stuff like that. Uh, But you guys have been doing some uh, interesting research around color
1: as well. Um, Tell me
0: a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, there's a, there's a fantastic product in our collection called color plan, which is a range of papers available in 51 colors. It's available in a really large range of thicknesses and you can emboss it. And it's, it 's it's almost like the cornerstone of our paper collection it 's our flagship grade, and recently or for the past few years we 've been working with a fantastic color forecasting agency called Franklin Till in London hmm. and you know they consult with brands about upcoming color trends and they I think they publish a magazine twice yearly which talks about color trends and forecasting and so on and they developed a really interesting campaign called Color Directions, which almost aimed to select a collection of our color plan shades and then build a theme around it to try and contextualize these colors in a line in line with emerging lifestyle trends. And, you know, Color Plan's been around for over 80 years now, and some of the colors that are in the collection have been there since the beginning. Hmm. So, you know, we review the colors. So as part of a recent color review, we actually started to wonder whether there was a color that almost best reflects our time. So by using the power of digital, we asked a simple question, what is your favorite color? And it was really interesting because as an incentive to take part, we said to our customer base, if you win, so to speak, we will add your paper to the collection, we'll name it after you, and then we'll work with a collection of different brands in the creative world to produce products based on that color. So of course, graphic designers around the country were thinking, I want my favorite color in the color plan collection. (laughs) Sure. so maybe two two months after that started, we closed. We had submissions from around 100 countries and over 27,000 entries. So I believe it's the, if not one of the largest ever colour surveys that we've done. And when you took part at the time of entry, it asked for people's names, age, gender, location. We were able to determine the weather based on location and when they took part. So then we kind of started to wonder, well, is, is there any correlation between all the data? But Perhaps the most interesting part is we actually just asked people to provide a small sentence just to let us know why they chose that color, what that made them feel, and then I think we realized after after a while because we we sent all of this information to a data scientist, the most interesting bit was almost like the word association and um yeah, we found some really interesting um really interesting data that kind of aligns with the linguistic side of it as opposed to perhaps the data side of it Interesting. so as of yesterday we're now publishing a really beautiful book which has essentially a breakdown it's written by a professor of color and that's going to be available you know in the near future and there's a fantastic and so a bunch of designers
0: then uh, got their name uh, uh got themselves named after their colors that's
1: well great. there was one lady called annie mars from dundee and i'm from <laughs> dundee in scotland and she happened to win it was a Well, it's called Mars Green. It's um, a very kind of teal colour. And she said it was inspired by the River Tay in Dundee, which I'm somewhat dubious about coming from Dundee. (laughs) However, it's it's a really beautiful shade. It's now in our collection and... She now has a Wikipedia page and there was really nice press at the time and so on. So it was really lovely for her as an existing customer by complete chance that she happened to land on the color that was almost like the most average popular, essentially. Yeah, that's how it was. That's how it was determined.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. I am uh, always fascinated by like the, the Pantone color of the year and things like that. How how, how using color as a way of kind of just capturing the zeitgeist and stuff happens. You, you get a yeah. sense of that, too.
1: Yeah, in fact, when we ran this color survey at the time, there was a lot of people who said, "Well, is this something you'll be doing every year? Is it something to almost compete?" There was a question of, "Is this some kind of competition versus the Pantone color of the year?" Oh yeah, yeah. Whereas, whereas that was never really the intention. You know, it was more about capturing just a state of people's color selection today, rather than saying this should be the most popular colour for the next X number of months or Do you years know how they figure that
0: out? They just like pick one or is it just a
1: It's I think it's a complicated process. I'm not a colour expert by any means. I actually believe Franklin and Till are quite heavily involved in the development of that. Um, yeah. But I visit some fashion brands and it's really interesting because they are looking at color palettes which are perhaps three, four or five years out for you know, for their latest mm. clothing lines, whatever that might be. And I wondered to myself, how can they know? <laughs> that that will be popular or that will be liked by you know perhaps a large group of people but then of course at the time five years passes you come to that time you then have um 16 different fashion brands all with the same color palette so it's it's something which i think has kind of creates a lot of intrigue
0: yeah i wonder how much is prescriptive versus descriptive you know yes, I, I it's, just, i'm curious about that
1: it's subjective, of course. That's that's the thing.
0: I just looked it up here, by the way. I had no I, I had missed it for two thousand nineteen that uh Pantone colour of the year is living coral. coral. Yeah. That's right. Nice. It's a nice and, color. It's good. I think it's, yeah, like, it's maybe a really editori- nice shade. a little editorializing on global warming, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Could be. Yeah. I don't
1: know. See Yeah yeah. Well that's the thing, because of course that whole kind of environmental angle is you know well across every industry at the moment so perhaps there's yeah that might well be part of it
0: or maybe i'm reading into it but
1: it's nice it's good i'll I'll, I'll put a link to that as well in the show notes you can go look at living
0: coral uh environmental hey that's the thing i wanted to ask you about if you're working with print are you you're cutting down all the trees yes
1: there's trees (laughs) to be cut down it's um i think it's one of these it's one of these subject matters which is very much misunderstood Yes, there's energy involved. Yes, you cut down trees. But I think what people have to understand is that it's, you know, particularly with our paper collection, it's so well managed and there are so many strict regulations in place. Mm. You know, you might have asked a group of school children 20 years ago how they make paper and they tell you they're cutting down the the rainforest in the Amazon, for example. But, you know, firstly, that isn't even suitable to make paper, that type of tree or pulp. And it's, you know, there are things in place which means that every... Every tree that's felled, three are planted. They're planted 1.6 meters apart, I believe it is. So there's lots and lots of things in place which ensure that no harm is being done, so to speak. Um, and they're always looking for improvements. That's you know we're you know a lot of mills are trying to work off renewable energy, and and we certainly tried to do that in our factory as well. But there's even. In interesting initiatives. We work with a paper mill in the Lake District, and they draw water for production, as every paper has to do. But the the river the, the mill sits on is a site of scientific interest. So the, I believe they have live crayfish or some kind of some sort of endangered species. And the water that they draw from their uh, for their production is then actually put back in cleaner than when it was taken out. So there's all these little initiatives and things that people don't realise because they just look at the bigger picture. It kind of frustrates me when you get your bank statement and it says, please don't get this bank statement because you're cutting down all the trees. Whereas actually it's, you know, it's a cost saving measure as much as anything. Sure. Sure. Do you, in the in the very high
0: end with the paper that you're, you're working with, is there, is there a recycled component to that or?
1: Yeah, there is. Or is,
0: is the quality of like, can you get to the quality there and stuff? Like, again, I'm like just showing my ignorance with paper and print and, and things like that. But like, t- tell me a little bit about that
1: yeah i mean recycled papers have been around for a while essentially papers that have been yeah. through the through the chain of consumer use so to speak and um and we we have a collection of papers which are manufactured completely from post consumer waste and you know that's fine and well but there is kind of new initiatives that i think i think brands are looking to actually to pick yeah. up on you know it used to be the case that if you used a recycled paper, you wanted it to be really recycled looking or look like cardboard or, you know, have lots of bits in it and grainy. That that kind of aesthetic, which kind of screamed, I'm recycled. Whereas nowadays, recycled, you could almost argue, is part of something that you must do rather than mm-hmm. just want to show that you're doing. there therefore, you know, especially in luxury, you could almost argue that sustainability and, you know, recyclability and the environmental credentials are becoming a part of luxury. So, we have a paper, for example, which is manufactured from disposable coffee cups. The paper mill works with a couple of large environmental service agencies. They collect all cups from large chains mcdonald 's costa Starbucks. They then strip out the polyethylene liner, which is the plastic liner for a paper cup if you buy takeaway coffee yeah, and that 's then upcycled into cable ties into garden furniture into cable insulation they then use the paper that's taken from the cup and then manufacture a brand new paper out of that, which is really beautiful. And even the leftover sludge and slurry and pulp from the making process is used as local fertilizer, as fertilizer on local farms. So this is a paper which hasn't necessarily gone through the traditional chain, but has quite literally been drank out of a cup in McDonald's, which we are now turning into a really beautiful new thing. And there's a there's an angle to that which I think people kind of a, can associate with rather than saying P-E-F-C, FSC 100% PCW, but in every <laughs> sheet of paper there are two paper cups and in every sheet of the thicker paper there are five paper cups. And that's something which I think customers can resonate with. You know, ever since David Attenborough on Blue Planet had his, you know, segment about plastic in the ocean, I think the consumer has become so much more aware of that type of issue. Yeah. So... You know, there's 2.5 billion cups that go to landfill in the UK every single year. We buy, on average, 4,800 paper cups every minute. It's ridiculous. Oh my goodness! So, just in so the UK. So this is the kind of just in the UK. I think the US is 50 billion cups go to landfill. Ooh. Yeah, that's heavy. Um, but I know.
0: <laughs> let's just let's back it up a little bit and talk uh, a bit about uh, the process here i i believe that from hearing from the people that listen to this podcast that they are largely digital designers um i know you know like i said myself the last time oh my gosh the last time that i worked on a project that was print was gosh when i was at a newspaper like in the early 90s and i'm using cork express like you know yeah. and 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 going out to the um out to the out to the press the building would shake the whole thing like that was a long time ago so uh so if we're i I feel like this this happens from time to time i see people on twitter that are like oh i gotta do a print project help me out where do i start um how how might one start to think about like all right i just so many options for how i might put this together and and all all my paper choices and all of this kind of stuff can you can you kind of walk us through that
1: yeah i think to some extent print is still somewhat shrouded in mystery to many people a bit a bit like the dark arts it's sawdust and all sorts of interesting technological machines that no one really knows how it works. But, you know, I think, well, certainly there's online companies such as Moo who are trying to almost take away that element of what you don't really need to know about and just say, look, if you want to have 50 leaflets, this is what it's going to look like. And you can go online, you upload your artwork, and then it comes back somewhat similar to what it looks like on a screen. Uh Um, whereas with the more I try to encourage people to think less about only the way that it looks and feels but also consider format and interest in papers and print techniques and binding methods and think a lot about the kind of final application that you have to or that you're looking to achieve you know if you're making a really beautiful bag for example which is a luxury bag maybe to hold a garment you have to think about all of the different elements that go into that you know whether it's its wet strength property if it's raining you don't want something to fall out the bottom of it or whether it's rubbers um, right. it's rub resistant qualities you know if it's a beautiful dark green bag and you've got a white pair of jeans inside you don't want that dark green to rub against the white garment you know there's there's kind of obvious things which you don't necessarily think about it, but are important when it comes to it. So I always say to people, just consider what the end use case is prior to even starting the job, and that will hopefully determine the type of paper that you should use. Um, you know, print's becoming a lot more accessible than it was in the past. With With digital print compared to your conventional CMYK, you know, it allows for much shorter runs, it allows for trials, um, whereas in the past you'd have so many setup costs and mm. That would almost create a barrier artificially because people were there was such a cost involved before Mm -hmm. you could actually see how something would look or feel. Whereas now, with the kind of immediacy of it, it's um, it really helps when you're trying to kind of get across your vision.
0: I, yeah, like if I'm going back and trying to remember that job that I had at the newspaper when we would do. Uh and I like I remember we would like do a special a special story and want to use color for it we'd have to like go get permission from the publisher cuz it was so expensive to run you know uh yeah. and see if we could and then we would do these things called color keys which we would literally print out on transparency pieces of i don't know film of some sort
1: Yeah okay. uh,
0: f- the four different the C the Y the M and the K and then literally right. like tape them together and hold it up to the light on a piece of, to see what it would look cool. like like um when it when it came off the press to see if our uh uh registration is the word i'm looking for right yeah. to make sure the registration was correct and all that kind of stuff um it was a laborious process it was for sure we did it very rarely but everything was still half toned and and black and white
1: yeah I, f- I almost feel like there's a little bit like you talk about all those technical terms and and I even noticed in ten years ago there would be a lot more knowledge about how things should be produced and CMYK and halftones and the different types yeah. of screen rulings that you would use. Whereas yeah. now it's quite sad in a sense, but there's almost less need to know that, just to a certain extent. You know, it depends on the project that you're working on, of course. But because print technology has moved on so quickly in the last, you know, f- five or ten years, especially digital print technology. You almost just have to feed it even a PDF and you'll get a result which, you know, can be pretty good, which mm-hmm. is either a good or a bad thing. You know, it has its pros and its cons, but it's it actually allows for people to kind of experiment more because with you can literally print one copy of something if you'd really like to to get a feel for it before it maybe goes into the mass production. I think that's where I think that's how things have changed over the last you know, five to 10 years at least. It kind of echoes what we were talking about at the very
0: beginning of the show here. This Because I think it goes in both ways, right? I am always a fan of any uh, generally digital process that makes something that was left to the professionals more accessible to anybody. Like I could almost as one of the, the cornerstones of my career is the stuff I've been, that's what I've been trying to do, right? Like, mm. can we use technology to democratize things that only a, s- a small group of people uh, had access to so when you talk about it, yeah sure like you can there there are tools that are very inexpensive that produced a kind of quality that would have cost thousands and thousands of dollars even a decade ago and for, for me that like that makes me happy that's great like that yeah. means more people are able to create and to like have a vision for something and make it i think that's great i think nowadays
1: as well what's quite important is there are a lot more i guess there's a lot less there's a lot less barrier to entry when it comes to creating a business perhaps than what might have been the case however long ago mm-hmm. so you know it's much easier to create a website you know we all know this it's there's a lot more information available to people to understand how to start a business so why shouldn't print be the same thing you know if you've studied law and you don't have any idea about print or graphic design but you have a passion for coffee and you decide to start a coffee brand why shouldn't you have access to online printing services, which allow you to have really beautiful literature or packaging. Likewise, why shouldn't you have a really beautiful website? Why should you have to, you know, and it gets to a stage, of course, where you might look to employ a professional who might do that for you. But I think there's a, there's a gray area between what's accessible for a certain type of person and what's maybe not accessible because of, because of the size or the scale and so on. That makes sense. Totally makes sense. It totally makes sense. And I
0: think there's the other side of that coin is what you were referring to as kind of the lost art, right? The 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 deep understanding of how every element of uh, of a technology works as a way of uh, acquiring mastery, right? So, um, I and I and I think we do we we do lose that all of the time right i on one hand like i have had on this program people writing books about the absolute like the nucleus of like web standards and how we make the things that that show up on screens today and on the other side you have wordpress and squarespace where literally anyone can make a gorgeous professional looking website i don't know you've heard the ads right like it's yeah, yeah, it's yeah. really simple it's really simple to do and both of those things can coexist and should do right and i think uh, uh, that that's where it's interesting for me and uh, on the print side uh, of things or the analog side, let's say of having the ability, right? Like a digital designer who spends all day like mocking up interfaces on the weekend is is there with the letter press, right? That's like, right. Yeah. Trying to like get back to it. Like when I mentioned uh, earlier uh, playing music, Right. I, I was like mm. I started like, ah, oh, this is fun and I've always played the guitar, but now I'm sort of getting into digital music and and you know, I spent a few weeks learning how uh Ableton worked, you know, and uh <laughs> messing around samples and stuff like that. It was fun and everything. But then I'm like, ah, I'm just sitting in front of the computer, I don't want to do that anymore. And and I went the whole other direction to like, wow, there's a whole world of analog synthesizers and like, oh my god, I want to learn how to solder now, you know, <laughs> like all the way down the rabbit hole of like trying to get the, to like, wh- how is how is sound produced, and where does it come from, and and how can we manipulate it, uh, as opposed to like you know arranging the lens samples in order and and having a song come out,
1: you know. So like both are both are true. We've seen such a resurgence in traditional print techniques come back. So there's you know the the processes such as letterpress and thermography and die stamping and things which are really intricate and you know essentially old fashioned, but there is a real desirability about them because it's precious now because it's rare. And that's where I think people get excited because it's not something which you see every day. Mm. Um, I always use that example where if you get a letter, which is handwritten through the post and it's in a beautiful envelope, how much more exciting is that nowadays than what it would have been seven years ago? I don't oh, know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, It's super meaningful. It's um, a- but also just on that, there's, you know, we've actually seen a bit of an explosion recently and almost like a crossing of paths between digital and print because with particularly one type of press technology it's called the HP indigo it has this software plugin which allows for algorithmically generated print output so what you essentially do is you feed um you feed in a seed or, or a, a series of layers they're called seeds and it will automatically and algorithmically completely alter and edit that imagery you have a certain amount of control over parameters, but what you end up is getting completely random generative artwork, which means that every single piece of print that you produce is completely unique and different mm. from one another. So you could produce 10,000 completely unique prints, or you could produce 10,000 all the same, and the price will more or less be the same because uh. with digital print, you can randomize it. So whilst variable data is an anything you think of mailing lists and so on, yeah. this kind of, I guess, more exciting colorful, algorithmically driven print process is getting digital designers a little bit more excited. Interesting. So
0: you, you could do like product labels, for example, and they would all they could all be slightly generative and,
1: and different. Well, the best example hmm. to mention is, if you remember a few years ago, the Coca-Cola campaign. With, um, with people's names on the cans? With, with, yes. So there was one where they had people's names, but they also did a follow-up campaign on Diet Coke. I believe it was a follow-up one where they had... A million different bottles, and uh-huh. it didn't have people's names, but it had an algorithm which essentially took an original piece of artwork and then completely muddled it across every single bottle that was produced with the only um, with the only kind of parameter being that the Diet Coke logo must always be front and center invisible according to which shade was behind it, but they should never have the Pepsi blue and that was one of <laughs> the parameters they set yep yeah yeah. Which makes complete sense, of course. Um, But then, of course, I was speaking to Design Studio who was, you know, they were designing a fairly corporate brochure for, um, it was for a property developer, and they, they almost took like a line drawing of the squire of this old church, and then they algorithmically used that to create a pattern on the book. And you could argue there was no value to the Finnish people, but it actually makes their job more exciting and actually gives them something to think about and be proud about. Because that one person who received that property brochure might not know that every single one is different. But for them, it almost gives them more appreciate a more appreciative nature of the art. So interesting. Wow. Yeah. So so there is some crossover between the world
0: of uh of what we're doing in in digital and personalization and
1: Yeah. Uh, and with packaging, you're that. seeing, you know, RFID tags inserted into papers nowadays. So you can essentially get information on the fly when it's sitting on a shelf, you know, regarding where it came from, or where it made, or if it was a whiskey, how it's been aged, and so on and so forth. So there's there is certainly crossover. You know, QR codes perhaps aren't that exciting because it's just a print technique. But there is some embedded technology now, which is starting to become a little bit mainstream, but still not exactly. You know, it's not it's not too commonplace. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Well, that's uh,
0: that's great. That's great. Um, I uh, before we go, uh, I wanted to ask you about marshmallows, if I could. Uh, <laughs> when I first met you, I met you with your partner Una. You did, uh, who offered us old fashioned marshmallows. I'm like, oh, great, old fashioned marshmallows. And I'm like, oh, old fashioned like whiskey and bitters. Oh, like gin and tonic. Like oh, so she makes these these very sort of bespoke artisanal marshmallows, right?
1: Yeah. So she studied as a chocolatier and patisserie chef in Paris for four years. And they'd make all of these unusual flavours of marshmallows every week. Kind of Don't think of your kind of white and pink flumps, so to speak. But she'd make really interesting flavours using interesting herbs and boutique alcohols. And then when she moved back to London, she realised that, and this is 2011, I believe, there was no one else doing it. It was completely... It was just not a thing that was really popular in the UK. So she essentially set up a market stall on Portobello Road. And <laughs> since then, you know, it's now eight and a half years in. It's gained a little, well, it's gained good traction. And she now stocks into kind of high-end apartment stores such as Harrods, Harvey yeah. Nichols. She has a lovely online shop. But yeah, it's old-fashioned, big, chunky marshmallows manufactured from real fruit. Um, she has her own bakery in Leeds. Yeah, Look at that. And and she does really interesting bespoke flavors for brands and for people's weddings, like what you had. Um, yeah, I was uh, looking at the uh, website. You got spiced tomato and vodka
0: marshmallows. And... So a bloody mary. So it's a good yeah. hangover cure. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, cannabis. There, yeah, so How's CBD. She which that off is... in the UK. That sounds like uh, back in California would be
1: fine, but over here. <laughs> <laughs> well, it turns out that CBD, which is the non-psychoactive yeah. element of um, of the cannabis plant, I guess, is. Um, you know, it's becoming a real food trend over here, and
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. We're seeing that in the US as well, for sure, all over the place. Yeah,
1: that's it. So, so yeah. So there's been a bit of popularity. She launched her CBD marshmallow last um, last June, I believe. So coming up for a <laughs> year now, and that's so it's CBD or cannabis, um, pink peppercorn, and grapefruit. But it has like ah, a really swifty like delicious. texture. But it's been amazing because she has emails from people because of of course there's kind of like a health benefit angle to it, and she has emails frequently because it's our biggest seller by miles that it's cured people's anxiety or it's stopped their knee from hurting and (laughs) these are real people who have just got in touch completely off their own doing and that's um yeah it's it's been really interesting to see because it's quite an unusual flavor which you don't really know how people are going to take to yeah exactly but but to be clear,
0: they're not the sort of like magic brownies or anything. It's, Nothing like that. No, nope, com- completely legal, above board, but with an interesting twist. So yeah, yeah, for sure. That's so cool. That's great. Yeah, paper,
1: paper and marshmallows. You guys are an interesting couple. Well, that's it. And whilst we deal with lots of lovely brands, you know, high end brands who use our paper for beautiful packaging, you know, in fashion and the automotive industry, technology. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we we can sell you tiny little amounts of paper, so. Of course, all her boxes are beautifully packaged ah, in GF Smith paper. So there was a bit of a deal, but we don't talk about that. So <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> fantastic.
1: Fantastic.
0: All right. So the company GF Smith, I'll put a link to them in the show notes. Go check it out. There's so many cool it's just so fun to go look through all of that kind of stuff. And don't you have like a showroom in London? I haven't even, I haven't been there yet, but
1: Yeah, we do. We opened the show space in January twenty seventeen, so just just past oh, two years go. ago yeah which is really fantastic it's almost like an inspiration and innovation suite where we'll have customers come in to discuss a project but it's also an ever changing exhibition where we can collaborate with interesting brands we have a an event space downstairs um where people can hire or people can um you know come and check out something that we have an installation we've had paper based installations and we've had origami based installations That's fantastic. and it's 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 actually a really beautiful space and it's three minutes from oxford circus so it's you know it's bang in the middle of central london fantastic all right i will make a point of getting over there and checking that out
0: ah great so all right the future is analog i think we've worked it out apparently (laughs) i'll send you a letter yeah fantastic you do that i would really appreciate that all right thank matthew thank you so much for being on the show this is great no problem at all thank you very much for having me and that's another episode of presentable